0: We're going to talk to Dr. Andrew Wilson about AML and really run through the diagnosing process, things like FLT3 mutations, functional neutropenia and what it is. We're going to talk about the trials that are running at UCLH and new changes to treatments and maybe some of the treatments that have been used in the past. And we're going to touch briefly on APML, differentiation syndrome and DIC.
1: Okay, so today's all about leukemia, so thank you Andrew for coming to talk to us no and let's start with the basics. Can you give us an introduction to AML?
2: So AML is an acronym for acute myeloid leukemia. This is an aggressive blood cancer and it's caused by a mutation in the early blood cells in the bone marrow which then begin to expand and proliferate until they take over the whole bone marrow. This removes all the space for normal blood cells, so these patients often present with a low blood count because the bone marrow is full of leukaemia. So it can present in two main ways. The first one is with low blood counts, and we call that pancytopenia, meaning that the hemoglobin, platelets, and the white cell count is low. On the converse, they can present with a very high white cell count, and this can be in the hundreds Uh, and we treat that as a medical emergency because it causes something called leukostasis. Stasis is static and leuko is white, so it means the white blood cells, which the leukemic cells, clog up the small blood vessels, and that can cause problems in the lungs, in the brain, and in the kidneys. And we have to send those patients for leukopheresis where they're attached to an apheresis machine and those white cells get washed out of their system and the normal blood cells are replaced. That's a temporary holding measure only to control the blood counts whilst we do all the diagnostics to find out what type of leukemia it is.
1: So the patients often present to us from their GP or from A&E to you. What would be your first steps in the diagnosis process?
2: You're absolutely right. Many patients will go to their GP, seems to happen quite a lot on a Friday, Um, and generally will have very kind of insidious symptoms, like feeling a bit short of breath, tired, they may have a fever, and the GP will often organise a blood test, which will definitely come back late Friday evening. Um, And the blood machines in the laboratory will automatically detect the presence of blast cells, and blasts are the very primitive type of white cell, and that is really suggestive of a diagnosis of leukemia, or at least possible leukemia. A biomedical scientist in the lab, or most usually a doctor, will look at the blood film to see these cells, and there are certain types of cell where the diagnosis is automatic if you see them, um, the diagnosis of leukemia can be made. More often than not though, it's the blood film is suggestive but not diagnostic and those patients then get sent to us usually as an emergency and we'll organise a bone marrow test. So the bone marrow test is uh, performed under local anaesthetic on the back of the hip bone and we take several samples the liquid part of the bone marrow which is a jelly-like substance and we spread that out on some glass slides and they're called the bone marrow aspirate or smears and then uh, some more is put into a blood tube and that goes down to the diagnostic lab which i work in and then finally we take a biopsy of bone, which is a bit like taking an apple core through a cross-section of the bone and then that gets sent to the histopathologist. Our initial diagnosis can be made sometimes just by looking at the smear and we can do that within a few hours of the bone marrow being taken. Sometimes the diagnosis from the smear is not clear and we can't distinguish whether it is leukemia or indeed what type of leukemia and so we employ different lab techniques such as flow cytometry and cytogenetic and molecular studies. And these are really critical because they inform us as to what the best treatment will be. I would say probably from seeing a patient undertaking the bone marrow, in most cases we get a diagnosis the same day or certainly the following day. There can be cases where it's really uncertain. This is a minority where it may take several days to get
0: clarity as to what the diagnosis is. When would it be urgent to start treatment within like a 12 or 24 hour window and when have you got some some room to sort of allow because obviously we do sometimes we do some tests before we start chemotherapy like you know sperm banking and echoes so when do you have to rush and when do you have time
2: that's a very good question it's a complex question because every patient is unique and what we try and do is tailor make our decisions to the patient in front of us I mentioned earlier of having leukostasis which is a high white cell count so we treat that as a medical emergency. Start the patient on hydroxycarbamide which is just a broad chemical cosh to suppress the leukemia and try and reduce the white cells and send them for apheresis. In terms of The further tests that we do, I can get fish back with it, which is a cytogenetic test to see whether the chromosomes are jumbled up in the leukemia within about 72 hours. And I can get some of the specialized molecular tests, like a FLIT3 test within about 48 hours. So for patients with a low white cell count who are otherwise well, Nowadays we hold off treatment until we've got all of that information because there are many new treatments that are particularly targeted if they have a flip 3 mutation or a particular cytogenetic abnormality in their leukemia. If we can't wait it's because the white cell count is too high or they are critically ill and we just need to institute some basic chemotherapy Fortunately, that is becoming the minority of patients. And certainly, if we'd been talking about this five years ago, most patients would have a diagnosis and would begin treatment the next day. Therapies are becoming more personalised. It's a very exciting time to work in leukaemia because we're working out that AML is not a single disease. It's many different diseases and there are many treatments available. So we try and tailor-make the treatment to the particular type of leukaemia that the patient has.
1: Is it possible to tell from diagnosis how likely it will be for a patient to just need chemotherapy or whether they'll need to then go on and have a bone marrow transplant?
2: Up front, if I was just looking at a patient's diagnostic bone marrow, we risk stratify based on their cytogenetics and whether they have a FLT3 mutation. Increasingly, we're doing some more detailed refinement by using next-generation sequencing to look at lots of other genes, which haven't yet been proved to be prognostic, but we think probably are. We know that people who have normal chromosomes fall into a middle-risk group, and their overall survival, this is young adults, their overall survival at 10 years is somewhere around 40-50%. to There is a group of patients who typically are much younger who have something called core binding factor leukemia, and this is associated with a translocation between chromosome eight and chromosome 21. We call that T821, or inversion of chromosome 16. These patients have good risk leukemia, and their 10-year survival is in the order of 70%. Conversely, if there are numerous chromosomal abnormalities, and it's typically the diagnostic criteria is four or more, we call that a complex karyotype, and unfortunately that has very poor risk at 10 years and the survival is much less. We know that people who have porous disease will highly unlikely to be cured by chemotherapy alone and will need a stem cell transplant to consolidate their treatment. We know people with good risk disease don't need a stem cell transplant because chemotherapy alone is usually sufficient to cure them. The people in the middle, in the intermediate risk uh, disease, are difficult and it's these additional molecular tests that help push them into either a good risk or a bad risk group. And the key one that does that is FLT3. the majority of patients who have a mutated FLT3 have normal cytogenetics and having a FLT3 ITD, which stands for internal tandem duplication, it means part of the FLT3 gene has just copied itself, is associated with an increased risk of relapse after chemotherapy. And we would send those patients for stem cell transplant too. So that's up front. said it was complex because... Actually, if your first round of chemotherapy is not effective, that automatically makes you high risk. And so even if you started off with what we thought was a good risk Mm -hmm. chromosomal abnormality, if the chemo doesn't work, you, you travel into the poor risk group. So we know a bit at the beginning, but generally we tell patients, unless it's very obvious, we wait till the end of the first cycle has completed repeat the bone marrow, check that they are in remission, which means less than 5% of leukemic cells in the bone marrow, and then we know we just need to talk about the cytogenetics. If they are not in remission, so there's more than 5% leukemic cells in the bone marrow, they become high risk, regardless of what they were at the beginning.
1: So you just basically start start again on a different line of treatment for a first cycle over
2: again? Yeah. There are many new treatments now. So if you started somebody with a first-line therapy, which is commonly DA, which is daunorubicin and Ara c if that had failed to put you into remission, we would usually upgrade the treatment and go for a salvage therapy, which is usually in our practice something called FLAG-IDA, which is a different
0: combination of drugs at different doses. How do you explain that to a patient? That must be like consenting someone at the very beginning within the first few days, you you can't get into that sort of detail with them, can you? Having a
2: diagnosis of leukemia uh, for most people comes as a shock and we have to be careful that we don't overload patients with information. Now, some patients will already have read their mm-hmm. Bloodwise books and their Macmillan books to find out all these options and will quiz us on them. And what we try and do is rein in lots of what if questions, because actually nobody knows the future. And we try and focus on dealing with the problem at hand, which is let's get through the first cycle. And we don't definitely make a treatment decision till the end of the first cycle anyway, in regard to stem cell transplant. So we leave it there if somebody asks and say, well, it's on the table, and we'll talk about it more after the first cycle. But we try not to jump way ahead because there may be two three or four cycles of treatment to go before somebody even gets to a stem cell transplant and people can get very preoccupied and it's our job to bring them back to try and contain a lot of anxiety and worry about what ifs when we're dealing with somebody who's having their first round of chemotherapy but you're absolutely right uh, it does happen
1: back say the old days, but it's really old days. <laughs> well, yeah. to say like, you know, thirty years ago, 20 30 years ago, to have leukemia would be a death sentence. You had a bald head, you were vomiting all the time. It was very, very negative. How do you think it's you know, two thousand nineteen now, how do you think the feeling is of of this disease, like in general?
2: So I think that is a very, very good question and the drugs we use today are the same drugs that we used in the 1970s and 80s to some degree the basic backbone of chemotherapy but I will send you some graphs that show survival for each five-year period since then has gone up and up and up and the reason is good nursing good supportive care Early intervention with antibiotics are half an hour window for neutropenic fevers to get some antibiotics in. Aggressive intervention by ITU and taking patients to ITU early before they become very sick. Good mouth care, barrier nursing, it's all good supportive care is I think the thing that has made the biggest difference to the outcomes of leukemia patients over the last 20 years and it's why it's so important. You know, as doctors, we come along and we poison people, and it's the nurses who pick up the pieces and look after the patients and recognize a deteriorating patient and then aggressively doing something about it is what leads to improved outcomes. And I certainly think having a robust neutropenic fever policy with the patient group directive antibiotics up front as soon as somebody has a neutropenic fever is certainly going to ensure greater survival.
1: As well, you're saying that we are using the same drugs that we've always used, but are there, you know, we've heard about new drugs or changes to leukaemia treatment. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: So you're absolutely right. The baseline drugs, uh, the DA, donorubicin and aracy have been around for donkey's years now. A number of clinical trials have looked at whether giving them at different doses or in different ways helps, but largely speaking, the way we do it now is probably the best way to do it. We've mentioned FLAG-IDA, which is now being used in the AML-19 uh, clinical trial, which is a stronger treatment and leaves patients with lower blood counts for longer is being compared against a new drug called CPX351. And we have patients on the ward having this now. And this is a liposomal formulation of the DA chemotherapy. Liposomes are little fatty, they're called micelles. And the drug is incorporated into that in a 5 to 1 ratio. And studies have shown that there is increased uptake into leukemic cells, particularly Of this drug but they work in the same way that DA chemotherapy does. So that's currently in trial and NICE have licensed that for high-risk leukaemia so we can use that upfront now. The other new treatment which has come on board and has been licensed by NICE in the last six months is Midostorin. So I mentioned previously patients have a FLT3 mutation and FLT3 certainly increases your risk of relapse after chemotherapy. And so we can now give midostaurin, which is a broad tyrosine kinase inhibitor, to patients who have FLT3 in conjunction with DA chemotherapy. And they have a course with each cycle of chemotherapy, and then they have up to nine months consolidation therapy with single-agent midostaurin. And so that's really useful for people that you for whatever reason are unable to send for an allograft because younger people with a flip 3 you'd want to send them for an allograft to stem cell transplant but if they were older or not fit for a stem cell allograft you've got nine months of single agent therapy which has shown good efficacy in reducing the rate of relapse the other new drug that's come through that we're currently using at the minute is called gemtuzumab azogamycin or GO. It'll be written in the notes as GO. His other name is Mylotarg. This is a monoclonal antibody against CD33. Now many myeloid cells, so that's cells that make neutrophils, express CD33 as a protein on their surface and gemtuzumab uh, binds to CD33 it's linked to a cell poison, and as that antibody is sucked into the cell, it poisons the leukemic cell. There's very good evidence that if you have what we called good risk leukaemia, i.e. the T821 or the inversion 16, or you have normal cytogenetics, gemtuzumab improves your survival and reduces your relapse rate. So we can give that, NICE allows to give that with DA chemotherapy. The AML clinical trial, AML19, is comparing FLAG-IDA plus GO with DA plus GO. So we'll get the results of that in a few years as to which one of those um, is the most effective combination. Those three drugs um, have been licensed in the last six months, so it's a really exciting time uh, for leukemia treatments, and there are more on the horizon as well. So we know we've got a few patients on the ward uh, who come in and out who have got mutations in the IDH1 and IDH2 molecules, which drive their leukemia. And we've recently opened a clinical trial of an IDH1 inhibitor, which is for patients who have relapsed AML, usually after an allograft. So these are people with... The disease has had the best treatment possible, and it has come back, and these people we say generally they are incurable at this time, and so this is a therapy for this very difficult to treat group of patients, and it's shown good effectiveness, and can increase the lifespan by up to a year at least.
0: So again, lots to be hopeful for, but I think there's a lot more work to do. I think functional neutropenia always kind of comes up. So why is it that if someone's in their first course of treatment for leukemia, they've got high white cell count, why do we consider them neutropenic sure. for all intents and purposes?
2: I can only tell you my understanding of this. I think this is a really ambiguous statement that gets bandaged around a lot. If you have leukemia, most of your white cells, the, the granular granulocytes in your blood, will have derived from a bad cell that has accrued lots of genetic problems. That being the case, although you might have a normal number of neutrophils in the blood, we can't guarantee that they actually are functional. So if we just treat the patient having a neutrophil count of 2.5, we might feel relaxed about that because there is a normal neutrophil count. However, if none of those neutrophils actually do the trick and they don't kill any bugs, it's as if somebody has no neutrophils. And that's what we mean when we refer to functional neutropenia, meaning although there is a normal number, they're not working properly. And that would be the case why we'd treat somebody for neutropenic sepsis, even though the neutrophil count is normal. So patients with MDS, which is a pre-AML condition. Will often fall into this category because we can't be sure that their neutrophils are working. Part of the dysplasia in myelodysplastic syndrome is that the neutrophils may not work properly.
1: Do we offer all patients the chance to go in a clinical trial?
2: So this is a, a slightly nuanced point. Recently the NICE approved new therapies were not available within the National Clinical Trial, AML19, and therefore, we because we want to offer the patients the best therapy available, we've had a drop-off rate in our recruitment to clinical trials. Everyone is offered a clinical trial, but if we can offer a better treatment off trial than on it, we will recommend off trial. I'm pleased to say that the NCRI who run the AML19 trial are fully aware of this gap and are issuing an amendment to include all of these new drugs in the trial hopefully from March.
1: So from my experience if someone's diagnosed with APML that's classed as a haematological emergency more so than a newly diagnosed AML can you tell us why that is?
2: APML, or APL as it's sometimes shortened to, is, stands for acute promyelocytic leukemia. And whereas we said blasts in AML are the very primitive white blood cells, promyelocytes are the next step in cell differentiation. So blasts turn into promyelocytes, which turn into myelocytes, and then they become neutrophils. In most acute myeloid leukemias the cell that goes wrong is the blast and in APL the problem creates too many promyelocytes and so you end up with a proliferation and far too many promyelocytes and nothing else. And promyelocytes are large sticky cells and cause lots of problems by releasing substances which activate the coagulation pathway, which ends up consuming fibrinogen and causes a problem called DIC, which is disseminated intravascular coagulation. And this is where the blood can both bleed and clot simultaneously in different parts of the body. Many patients who have APL will all, will present already in DIC, which is a medical emergency. The leading cause of death in these patients is intracranial haemorrhage. The good news is that with modern treatment, we can affect a 95% plus cure rate at 5 years without chemotherapy. So. The, at the first suspicion of APL, the treating clinician should institute therapy with ATRA, which is all-trans retinoic acid. Retinoic acid is a vitamin A derivative, and part of the problem in APL is that the chromosome 15 and chromosome 17 have become jumbled up, and they produce a brand new gene called PML-RARA. And that causes promyelocytes to stop maturing, which means they accumulate, which means they set off coagulation and cause DIC. Atra binds to the RAR protein and relieves that block so those promyelocytes can go on and mature normally. If we give that in combination with arsenic, arsenic targets the PML part of protein and sends it to the cell dustbin to get it broken up and chewed up. And that combination leads to a cure in over 90% of patients and there is no chemotherapy involved. Mm -hmm. All of the harm from AML is caused within the first month and it's usually from bleeding. So that's why a critical attention to clotting screen, fibrinogen, And those parameters is really essential for these patients as soon as they're diagnosed and throughout the first few weeks, because we want to keep the clotting screen normalized, so a normal PT, and APTT, and certainly keep the fibrinogen above two. If we don't do that, the likelihood is that they will have a hemorrhage, and the commonest site of hemorrhage is in the brain, which is obviously devastating.
0: So with APML, there's a thing called differentiation syndrome. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Differentiation
2: syndrome is quite a serious problem that happens in many patients who have APL. So as I said, the problem is an accumulation of promyelocytes. And when you treat with ATRA, what happens is the block on differentiation is released and those promyelocytes go on to become myelocytes and neutrophils. So from having a very low white cell count, patients in a few days' time may end up with a white cell count of 50, which are myelocytes and neutrophils. So that's just the breaks have been taken off and differentiation can occur. Now, that is also associated with what we call a cytokine storm, because all of these cells are maturing all at the same time, which is abnormal. And that can cause beaky capillaries, so causing fluid retention, so daily weights and measuring input-output is important. It can cause infiltrates in the lung, so hypoxia and low oxygen are another one of the symptoms of that. And it can also exacerbate the DIC that may or may not already be there. So the treatment of that is to give dexamethasone, 10 milligrams twice a day. In patients who are relatively high risk for this, i.e. they've already got uh, kidneys that are not working properly, or they have a higher Y-cell count to start with, then we might start that dexamethasone quite early. The average day of onset of differentiation syndrome is between day 7 and 10. But as I said, if they start with a high white cell count, that might be as early as day four. And you'll see white cell count going up and up and up in the blood. And if it gets above 50, we often will add in some hydroxycarbamide to try and prevent it going too high.
0: And the infiltration in the lung is... White cells migrating to the lung.
2: Or? Uh, it's leaky capillaries okay. in the lung caused by all of the cytokines that are being released by these cells as they mature. So, ordinarily, because this is a controlled uh, process in the bone in the healthy bone marrow, we don't see this. But in APL, because all the white cells are at the promylocyte stage and they all get released in one go, there is a massive surge which causes this problem. So we're very alert to changes in weight, changes in breathing status in the first two weeks of Atra therapy. In summary, I think it's a really exciting time to be looking after patients with leukemia. I fully understand that being on the ward with patients who have leukemia can feel quite depressing or sad at times because often our patients are very sick. But there are lots of new treatments. and I just want to reiterate that the most important thing to ensure patient survival is good supportive care, which means good nursing, good antibiotics at the right time when they uh, develop a fever. And, you know, working as a team really is critical to the success so that as many patients as possible can survive and help. Have-